the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Wednesday afternoon. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Grateful that you've tuned in to listen to the program today. This is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, whatever's going on in your life, we'll do the very best that we can to answer those questions. Here's how you can contact us, and we really do appreciate your calls. Area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, you will be much safer if you use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Today is Wednesday. That means tonight we have here at Calvary Chapel our Old Testament Bible study. Pray for me. This is another difficult, uh, not a happy subject. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. One of the most direct, in fact, I got a question about it yesterday's program. One of the most direct difficult Bible studies ever last week, and and this week uh, we kind of deal with the fallout from it, so um, I guess we need to learn that sin has consequences and there are always unintended victims, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and then tomorrow, of course, because it's Thursday, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date, the edition of the program, so ladies, it is your day. If you have any particular questions or you need any encouragement of any type, Please, please, please don't hesitate to call. Paula will be live with us tomorrow. A quick programming note. I said I would remind you every day this week. I don't want you to forget. Uh, Paula and I are leaving on vacation um, early Monday morning. So uh, Pastor Ken will be live uh, behind the microphone here on the program. Um, You can call him with your questions. Uh, The following week, that will be all week next week, and then the following week, um, we will have rebroadcasts on the first Thursday. Uh, Pastor Ken and his wife May will be together for uh, a, a more interesting date day edition of the program. So all of that's coming up next week. And again, I covet your prayers uh, for Paula and for me uh, while we're on vacation. We really, really need to hear from the Lord. And we got a whole bunch of stuff to lift up to him. Uh, He never disappoints, but it's always nice to know that people are praying. Okay, here is our first question. This comes from Monica, um, and it came through our email address. Uh, Monica says, Matthew chapter 5, Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Can you address this scripture? Um, Monica, I can. This is one of those passages of scripture uh, that really highlights the importance for uh, really studying, not just what it says, but the context uh, that it was spoken in. Uh, It it was uh, um, um, who Jesus was speaking to, what were the issues behind the scene. So that's what I'm going to do. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus had a uh, an agenda whenever he was asking um, questions or, or, or preaching sermons. Uh, in this particular case, um, the Jewish uh, leaders had come to him and said, Teacher, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife or any and every reason? And so Jesus really went on. Now, this is a Jewish context, so we have to understand that Jesus was addressing Jews. In the time that Jesus was ministering in and around Jerusalem, there were two different uh, schools of thought. Rabbis uh, and the traditions followed two separate schools of thought. One was a school of thought that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. If she was displeasing to him, uh, if breakfast wasn't cooked properly, he could say, well, you're, not, you're displeasing to me, and he could divorce her. Uh, the other school of thought was that the only reason for... Um, a divorce would be uh, unfaithfulness, adultery. Um, and those two schools of thought were always at odds with one another. So what happened is representatives from both sides came and said, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus didn't want to talk about divorce. This Matthew chapter 19. And one of the things to understand about Matthew chapter 19 that is so beautiful is that they wanted to talk about divorce. Jesus said, no, I want to talk about marriage. One man, one woman forever. Haven't you heard it is written? They will later say, well, why did Moses permit us to give certificates of divorce? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts. As one who has done tons and tons and tons of marriage counseling, every problem, every problem that that I encounter is because of hard hearts. People want what they want. They don't want what Jesus wants. They come into counseling often and want me to negotiate a sort of a peace treaty and we never do that well that's what was happening uh, to Jesus so can we divorce for any reason or can't we and he says no let's flip this conversation God intends for one man and one woman to be married forever when he gets down to the verse that you talk about I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Later he will say that the woman commits adultery as well. Um, Please take note that Jesus is saying that incompatibility, incompatibility rather, not loving one another anymore or or just being miserable are not grounds for divorce. There are situations in a marriage that are grounds for divorce. Physical violence, and I always say this, and I emphasize it, I'm going to continue to do so. Women, if you are in a marriage where you're in danger or you're being abused, physically beaten, then you need to run. God doesn't want you to live under those circumstances. If you're in a marriage where your spouse is involved in illegal activities, um, those are grounds sometimes for separation but you just need to protect yourself and your future obviously adultery is um, grounds for divorce but even in these instances the goal should always be reconciliation if possible now uh, on this program some time ago I had a phone call Uh, from a man who was tormented because he'd been divorced before he was saved. And somebody told him every time he and his second wife had normal sexual relations, he was making her an adulteress. He talked about repenting, but being guilty again and again and again. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. We must remember the context of the passage and to whom Jesus was speaking. He was a Jew under the law, talking to Jews about the law they claimed to follow. So this really isn't a message that has any real practical value for Christians under a new covenant. So what Jesus is saying, now here's the the context that we have to understand. Jesus is saying that this 
serial divorce that one of the schools of rabbis was proclaiming was nothing more than disguised adultery. Just a disguised method of being with other women. So it's very important. We know it cannot be true that if you are divorced and remarried legally and biblically that you're committing adultery. So don't understand. Jesus was addressing a specific argument with specific people from a specific perspective. What Jesus was doing is telling the Pharisees that they're guilty of adultery because of their cavalier approach to marriage and divorce. It's impossible for God to give us the freedom to divorce in some cases and then convict us of adultery when we're also free to remarry. I hope that makes sense to you, Monica. This is a very direct word um, to the Pharisees who were justifying adultery by using the law that enabled them to divorce. It's just that simple. And I would be remiss for you, Monica, and for the rest of the radio audience if I didn't also say that we do the same thing. When we see people that are in their second or third marriage or in their uh, multiple relationships, even without marriage, um, we're just rationalizing committing adultery. That's where our if that's where our heart is. But I want to make this really, really clear. If in fact you are divorced and legally remarried, you're not committing adultery, and don't let anybody tell you are. It's one of the reasons, as I said earlier, that we really need to be good students. It's one of the reasons that we have to do more than just read it at face value. We have to compare what we're reading to the rest of Scripture and to the character and the nature of God. So, Monica, I hope that answers your question. Thank you for asking it very, very much. Here is a question from Donna. She says, should we be praying to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Donna, the answer is yes. And I'm not being uh, cute here. The answer is yes. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So we pray to God. Now, if what you're saying is, should we be praying to the Father in the name of the Son, that's not a literal thing. The name of the Son is what gives us access to the Father. That's what Jesus meant. He said, up to now you've asked me nothing, but soon you will ask the Father in my name. And, and when we say in my name, you know, in our Christian culture, we just end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. But that's not what he was talking about at all. In his name represents who he is and what he came to do. And Jesus, of course, is talking about access. So our access to God comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we pray, it doesn't really matter whether we pray to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Since all three are God, we should worship all three. We can talk to all three. So when we pray, there's no competition in heaven between Father, Son, and Spirit. Nobody's keeping score how many times you say Father, how many times you say Jesus, or how many times you say Holy Spirit. But talk to them all, because all have a part in our salvation, and all of them have a part, of course, in our sanctification, walking out um, our lives in this world, serving Jesus. Very important that we understand that when we're talking to God, and Donna, for you, I want you to understand, that's what I'm talking about. When I talk about prayer, I'm talking about talking to God. I'm not just making, when I'm making requests, I'm not talking about when I'm in trouble or when I have a real need. I'm talking about just talking to God. That's what prayer is. And if we'll just talk to Him, if we'll be with Him, it'd be kind of rude to be with Him and not talk to Him, so we talk to Him. That's prayer. And I usually start my prayers with, Good morning, Father. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. And I do that because I want to, more than anything, remind myself that the Father sent the Son, and the Son sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is the power that propels me through this day-to-day life. So pray to 
God, who is one God, manifest in three persons, all with a specific mission, and all who only and always have your best interests at heart. So, Don, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585, we'd love your phone calls. phone's been quiet this week so far. Dallas says, I know God knows when we will die, but can we do anything to lengthen, lengthen or shorten our lives? Dallas, I want to take two approaches to this question. The first approach is, um, from God's perspective, of course not. Of course not. We, we, God knows the exact moment that we're going to die. Why? Because God knows everything. He lives outside of time and space. So he knows the moment we're going to die. You remember the interesting case with, with uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah uh, was sick, and, and uh, he asked, is his sickness going to end in death? He was told that it was. And then he pleaded with the Lord. He said, well, I don't have a son to pass this on to. And, and so God sent Isaiah to him, to him with the God has granted you 15 more years, and in that 15 years he had a son. Now it turns out the son Manasseh was the worst king ever, the most evil man probably of, of all of Israel's kings, who is, by the way, going to be in heaven, he repented. But it wasn't a good thing. But even then, Dallas, God knew that he was going to extend Hezekiah's life. So that's why we pray. Doctor gives us a terminal diagnosis. Of course we can pray. God, I, 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 more time, please, to serve you, to love you, to know you, to, to do whatever it is you've called me to do. And when we understand that, um, there are times when God's going to answer, but of course he knew he was going to answer, so he knew the original day that we were going to die. Not what the doctor said. So, yes, now here's something else that's important, though. I think, Dallas, that we, all of us, owe God being good stewards of our body. And I'm not talking about being a physical fitness fanatic. But I'm talking about being a good enough steward that we exercise, that we eat wisely. I don't think that we're serving God if we're not, if it's our fault and we're not healthy enough to do so. I don't think it's a good thing if we're way overweight or if we let our health just sort of deteriorate. Uh, I think we owe it to the Lord based on what he's done for us out of the gratitude we have to offer him the best we've got. And I would like to think that people would be really, really concerned and focused on their physical health. Paul says that that bodily exercise profiteth little relative to spiritual exercise is the idea there. But it has value. And the way I've always approached this, Dallas, is that in my life, I want to be as fit as I can, and I want to do that so if I die, it's not my fault. If I die, it was just my time, and I'll go to be with Jesus and won't regret anything. I don't want to get to heaven and find out that because I wanted to eat too much or I wanted to drink too much or I smoked cigarettes or anything like that, I wouldn't want to think, well, that's why I'm here. I don't want to look at the Lord and see a whole reward cabinet, rewards that were intended to be given to me that would, would have to be given to other people because I wasn't healthy enough to do the work God wanted me to do. So we can lengthen or shorten our lives by taking care of ourselves, but even then, the day of our death is known by the Lord. And He knows when it's going to happen, and He's never wrong. He doesn't cause it. He just knows it. And somebody once said to me, well, Pastor Ron, if that's true then why not? Why even bother to exercise? God knows the day we're going to die. I said, yeah, but, but what if he knows the day you're going to die is 10 years before you had to? Let me say one other thing, Dallas. I know I already said I'd tell you one thing, and then this is another one. The older I get, the more valuable this line of thinking becomes. I don't know how long you've been listening to the program, but May a year ago, in fact, on my birthday... I was having surgery. 
I had this freak thing happen with my heart, not a heart attack. My, I've always been blessed with good health. Uh, I got a virus. The virus attacked my heart. And it gave me this condition called a, a muscular heart. I always wanted muscles, but not a muscular heart. And this condition caused my heart not to pump blood out. Blood was coming in just fine. I had no blockages or anything like that. But blood wouldn't pump out. It was only 26%, and minimally, I think it's supposed to be 55%, maybe 60%. And I was going through difficult times. Finally, when I went to the doctor, they dragged me into surgery. That's how critical it was. And the doctor said the only thing that saved my life was being in as good a physical shape as I was in. That means that because I was careful about being fit, I've now had a little bit more than a year that I might not have had otherwise. So I think it's very, very important not to leave anything undone. And I think the best way we can do that is simply to be good stewards over that which God has given us. So Dallas, I hope that helps answer your question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Amanda. How should the church respond to the ever-increasing incidence of suicide? Amanda, uh, I don't know that it's the church's job to respond. I think it's something that we ought to talk about um, in the church. When public figures uh, commit suicide, people are affected. Um, it would be foolish to think that even among Christians, we don't deal with people who are depressed. We need to be sensitive to that. Uh, I think all churches, at least if they don't, they should. We have um, um, programs in place um, so that if somebody, for instance, on my staff would hear that somebody is... is um, talking about suicide, we'd respond to it. Um, but it's not our job to respond to the world. The devil's job is to kill, to steal, destroy. And we don't want to give our guys that exposure. Let's go to Bastrop County in Texas and talk with Anonymous on line one. Anonymous, thanks for calling. You're on the air. You there, Anonymous? very loud. Um, I just want to say that, you know, although people don't call, that doesn't mean they're not listening, because a lot of people oh, I... really do listen to the station, and I love it, and it's great, and it's such an, a resource that people have, you know, one of the many, of course. But I've got a question concerning the sheep and the goat parable that the Lord gave, and, and just, um, you know, I know somebody that um, has a family and has a single income, and they have a big heart, a very big heart. And they feel like, you know, if a friend or if somebody that's not saved uh, is in bad way and they're homeless, they need to bring them in. And, you know, because the Lord, uh, the sheep and the goats, and, you know, you, you didn't have, you know, I needed this and you weren't there. And and it's kind of like where you're bringing a, a potentially dangerous situation in. I mean, yes, yeah. you know, you mean well to serve and to and to bring these people to the Lord through your example and your family life. and But it's a dangerous road to me, and they really can't afford it. So, um, you know, that's what they stand on, that, you know, the sheep and the goats and that we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus, which is true, and to show Jesus to a world that don't have him, which is true. And when somebody needs a home and they're homeless and they have children or the situations or health, you know, problems, that... She feels that, you know, that it's our job or it's the church's job to bring these people in. So I I kind of, you know, I mean, I love the heart, and I, I believe it is the Lord's heart to help those who can't help themselves. But when you're talking about, you know, I mean, if you don't have the resources, you don't have them. If you've got to take food from your, you know, children and your bills to to provide for this extra family, I mean, to me, you know, God will provide. That's true. So, it's, I mean, like I said, I mean, we kind of go back and forth on some of this thinking, you know, and it does say to whom much is given, much is required. So, 
you know, would you say that, you know, we are a very prosperous nation, and, and theoretically, if we all ate a little bit more healthily or better, we could probably give more money to the poor and maybe help other people. But uh, where is your stance on that? I mean, I think that she's kind of not reading these scriptures correctly, or at least not standing on them in the light that of her situation. So if you can help me with that, I'd really appreciate it. I'll listen online. Thank you, Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much, Anonymous. And and uh, I'm going to have to take the answer to the other side of the break uh, because we're coming up to a hard break in just a, just a moment or two. Uh, so please hold on over the break, and I'll get you the answers. Let me just sort of address the, 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 the first statement that you made, and I really appreciate your heart here. Uh, the fact that um, uh, I'm asking people to call. Uh, I, I understand people are listening. I understand that uh, talk radio, by the way, has changed completely since telephone laws and, 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 and cars have changed. Uh, I, I do that not, not because uh, I don't think anybody's listening. Uh, we know better, but, but I do it because you guys are typically more interesting than I am. Um, but, but because of the, the new laws with driving in the car uh, and talking on the phone, we get far more questions via email or, or uh, um, our app than we do on the phone. It's just better for the, the listening audience uh, when people call. So, Anonymous, thanks for calling. On the other side of the break, I'll address the sheep and the goats. And let me just tell you that you're right. Uh, she's misunderstanding the passage. And we'll talk about it. Middle or... Oh, we got... 30 minutes more. We'll see you in two minutes. <laughs> Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. Sorry, I got tongue-tied at the end. I was starting to sign off, thinking, wait, time went so fast. But we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Anonymous, thank you for the call, and please tell your friend, um, friends, uh, I so appreciate their heart. I, I appreciate their heart. However, you're absolutely right. They're bringing, they're inviting danger into their homes. They're inviting um, um, situations that they're not prepared to handle and all because of misunderstanding of this passage. You know, we go to um, uh, Travis Park. We have a huge outreach once a year uh, downtown here in San Antonio and uh, th- there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people down there and a lot of those people are homeless and every year we've got uh, I know probably 60% of our church shows up at these at, at this event we got so we got tons and tons of people, and we always have to tell them beforehand. Look, um, you're going to be asked for money. You're going to be um, um, uh, told every sad story ever. These people can be clever manipulators. Um, so we are going down there. Don't even take money. We're going down there to give them Jesus. And it feels so inadequate when people really have a need, and we're going to tell them about Jesus. And I always say, but the, 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 the example is like the beggar at the gate, beautiful. He wanted money. And Jesus had so much more for him. Peter said, gold or silver have I none. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. So the most valuable thing that we have to give people is Jesus. Now, in your particular case, the sheep and the goats, she's misunderstanding it. Jesus said, and I'm going to go all the way down to verse 40 and just read sort of the the, the, the important part here. He said, Remember, this is a parable. He said, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, what we've got to do in in terms of our diligent study is determine who the brothers are. Um, we know there's going to be a great revival during the Great Tribulation. The best revival ever will be led by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who've been protected by God to ensure that their ministry is going to be complete. So the people that Jesus refers here uh, to are those Jews who didn't believe before the rapture but have come to faith in their Messiah during the Great Tribulation. The Olivet Discourse is contextually placed in the Great Tribulation. We won't be there. So we need to be careful 
those people need help. During the Great Tribulation, people who are left will be required to take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell. Finding food is going to be nearly impossible during this time without the mark. These brothers of Jesus, of course, will not take the mark, and life for them is going to be unbearably difficult. The Antichrist is going to hate him because he re- they refuse to worship him, and um, the, the, the people who are left there uh, uh, to be judged individually, the sheep that Jesus addresses, are those who saw these newly believing Jews in need and offered help during the Great Tribulation. The sheep are doing what comes natural. They've been born again by faith in Jesus, and their hearts and minds, their habits have all been changed. But because now they're new creations, they cannot not, I know that's bad English, but they cannot not help those in need. They have compassion, the same Holy Spirit that lives in us and produces the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, now lives in them. So they're just acting like new creations. Now, on the other hand, the goats are also just doing what comes natural. Goats, unlike sheep, they don't follow a shepherd. They're stubborn. They'd rather butt heads with one another than do anything constructive, and they will eat anything, even trash. Sheep are flock animals. They follow one another as the shepherd leads. Not so with goats. They're individuals. They're willful. They're strong. And what Jesus is referring to is the people who are judged as a result of being in the Great Tribulation. Now, we're talking about being judged in heaven at the Great White Throne Judgment. Um, they're going to be judged for rejecting Jesus and rejecting his people. So it's the judgment of nations only in a sense that the individuals who make up those nations are going to be judged. But this isn't the judgment of nations that is referred to. So compassion is always what we should do for the people who are hurting. But we shouldn't. We also have a responsibility to protect our families, to protect our own lives to be fruitful for the Lord. I think sometimes, Anonymous, and and I don't know your friend, obviously, so this isn't one of those things that I can say applies to you, but generally speaking, I think sometimes there are just some people who are built with this this heart, and, and, and we do good deeds. It shows up every Christmas time. People who will hardly ever come to church will call me and say, well, is there some people I can give some presents to for kids, or can I do this, or can I do that? And, and what they're doing is they're trying to do good things to try to justify themselves before God. I know that's not their, their mindset, but that's really the result. And so what they do is they do all these good things. It makes them feel better, but it really doesn't often help. Now, I have no problem with giving people, I'm a generous guy. But when somebody rejects Jesus, then all the stuff I do won't help. And I would never put anybody in my family or in my church at risk by saying, you know, this guy had a really nice story, and I think if you let him come and stay at your house, and you know what, I've got people who do it if I asked them. But that's not what the passage is teaching at all. This is a very in-house conversation Jesus is having, and the Olivet Discourse deals only with judgment in his people. Again, is it wrong to have compassion or to try to help people? I think this is one of those times when we really need to be led by the Spirit instead of led by our emotions or our feelings. So please tell your friend to be very, very careful in the process. Let's go to shirts and talk with Scott. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I'm talking to you too much this week. <laughs> I wanted to Never. make a comment here, again, on what you were just saying, and absolutely um, being led by the Spirit. But I kind of had that issue, too, in the past where I would overly try to help, maybe, and I could never tell anybody no, and no matter what was going on. But I had a very wise pastor share with me one time, and I'd like to share that with with the uh, the person we were ta- they were talking about earlier, uh, and anyone else, um, he said, "Be careful not to interfere where God is working." Mm-hmm. We see the people struggling. We see them going through difficulties, saying, "Oh, well, I can fix that. I can help that." But we, like you said, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. God may be doing a work in their life, and we need to not interfere with what He's doing. Also, 
and there again, it's following the Holy Spirit. God bless you, brother. Um, Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it very, very much. God bless. Uh, you know, Scott's that, that's wise. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we who are Christians have so little faith in the power of God to convert people that we take matters into our own hands. And we need to resist that. We need to resist that. If every Christian would believe this one thing, we have one message, and that's a Savior who was crucified and risen from the dead. Paul said, I resolved to preach nothing except Christ and crucified. Paul didn't raise uh, 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 food drives. Uh, Paul didn't invite people into uh, his home. Of course, we know he didn't have a home. He was traveling around. Uh, but, But he preached Jesus to them. And he was fully confident that Jesus was powerful enough to solve any problem they had if they wanted to be resolved. And Scott's point is that sometimes we get in the way. Sometimes people are living through consequences that are designed by God to bring them to the end of their selves. And when we interrupt that, well, we're interrupting the work that was initiated by God. That's never a good thing. Here is a question anonymously that just came into the station. Last Wednesday, you made the comment that a woman is a reflection of her husband's walk in Christ. Can you please expound on this? Yeah, I can, and I don't remember the context of the question, anonymous, but this is something that I've said a lot. You know, I don't know if you remember the old movie, Remember the Titans. Um, uh, It was a, a, a pretty famous movie at the time. There was a line in there. There was it was about a a, a, a black coach being uh, brought in to um, integrate a, a school um, in Alabama um, back, I think, in the '60s. And um, of course, it was a difficult time, and so um, all the black players that were bust in to play, and the black coach, everybody was resentful. And and the the two captains, the two stars of the defense, the best players on the team, uh, one white on, on defense, the other black on defense, and they couldn't get along. And and the white guy was the captain from the year before, and he was really being critical of the black guy and the black guy being critical of him. And he said, see, that's the problem. The white guy said, see, that's the problem. Your attitude stinks. And he looked at the white captain, and he said, attitude captain is a reflection of leadership. And that perfectly describes the home. If, and I'll use me and Paula as an example, if Paula's not the wife that I want her to be or hoped for her to be, it's because I'm not the man of God that God wants me to be for her. You see, if I have enough faith to know that if I do what God wants me to do, God will work on her. And this is just an example. Paula's perfect. I think you all know that by now. But, but if my wife is kind, it's because I'm kind to her. If my wife is loving, it's because she knows she's loved by God and by me. If my wife is secure in her walk with Jesus, that's going to show. If she's secure in my love for her, that's going to show. And so that's the whole point of leadership. Leaders lead others follow. Conversely, and that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight in horrible detail um, with David. David was not a good leader. His sons saw his life and they followed their leader and made the same horrible mistakes. You see, the, the husband in the home, the man of God, is charged with the responsibility, the privilege, really, by the Lord of rightly representing him to the woman God gave him. If you think about it in those terms, we'd never complain about our wives. And we wouldn't complain because it would be like complaining against God. God, God, you gave me this woman. And he would say, yeah, I really did. Why don't you act like me? We're supposed to be a reflection of him. And when we're a reflection of Jesus, then our wives will be a reflection of us. If we got a wife who's cold and unforgiving and sarcastic and, and, and there's just not much friendship in the marriage, it's because she doesn't feel loved. 
something Paula says all the time when she's on this program and even more in counseling at church to women who are bitter, women who are angry. She says, you just don't know how much you're loved by God. And so Anonymous, it's men's responsibility to make sure our wives know how much God loves them. And if we don't show them, what value is there in me telling Paul I love her if I'm a jerk? If she doesn't benefit from that love, there's no value. So that's what I meant on that. I hope that uh, answers your question. Let's go to Cedar Park and talk with Steve. Steve, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Um, I had a question. I'm doing a study in Acts, and I'm in Chapter 21. And um, around verse, let me find it, around verse 4, uh, they're in Tyree uh, waiting, and it says, you know, they having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And then it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh-huh. But we certainly know that Paul by the Spirit was telling him it, it is time now to go to Jerusalem. So I just had a question on that. You know, as, as it kind of it, it seems like the Spirit's testing Paul to see if he's going to give up. Uh, and then toward the end of um, chapter 21, they, they visit the Jerusalem church, and James, the, the leader of the church, is there, and he's already written the epistle years ago would be my understanding and he's probably you know that's a pretty strong letter about how to be a christian but it doesn't really seem like the jerusalem church supports paul at all when he ends up getting in all this trouble mm-hmm. in jerusalem again he's by himself um and, and i'm just wondering was the jerusalem church that i guess even through the letters they don't seem to be kind of a stalwart church certainly but i was just surprised that james the leader because there's all sorts of false information about what Paul was doing, and it, it just didn't seem like uh, the leader of the church or the Jerusalem church as a whole was very, very supportive. Yeah. Steve, I, I can help, I think. I, I, uh, uh, I love the way you're thinking about this uh, because it, it forced you to go in depth. The only disagreement I would have with what you said uh, is that I, I personally believe that the, the epistle of James was written after this encounter, after the council uh, in Jerusalem oh, okay. and, and after the problem. So, so that's, that's my opinion. But remember something else, that, that James didn't know he was writing Bible. Uh, James is just writing uh, to to Jewish believers. Uh, that letter would circulate throughout the world, uh, and and I, it's my opinion that that happened at a later time. And I I think I have pretty good authority for that. Um, a couple of things in this whole whole passage of scripture. Um, uh, you you remember in I think it's Second Kings chapter two. Yes, it's Second Kings chapter two, when. Uh, everywhere Elijah and Elisha went, this is just before Elijah was translated up in the chariot, everywhere they went, right. the prophets in the community would say, you know that the, the Lord is going to take your master from you. And he would say, yeah, but don't say anything about it. In other words, he didn't want to think about it. Well, every work gets tested. And Paul now knows he's got to go to Rome. He's compelled to go to Jerusalem. He says, I'm willing to die if that's what it takes uh, to to go, but I've got to do this thing. And everywhere he goes, there's going to be godly people who say, don't go. Agabus, the dramatic prophet. It happens, I think, in Acts chapter 20 or Acts chapter 19. Uh, Don't go. The man wearing this belt is going to be bound. And, And he says, look, I know that everywhere I go, hardships in jail await me. But I have to go. So all of these, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go. Uh, they were just misinterpreting the Spirit. Yes, through the Spirit, the Spirit really was warning them about these things. But then God allowed uh, Paul to be tested. Now think about this. Even at this late stage in his walk, he's still being tested. God never stops testing us. I was just walking with the Lord this morning outside, and I was just thinking, you know, Lord, here I am. I'm 67 years old. And all I can do is, is, is walk with you every day because the tests never stop coming. Well, that's God's gift to us. So Paul was given the opportunity to know the end. You're going to be in trouble. But he said, you know what? If I'm going to be in trouble, I'm going to be in trouble with Jesus. I'm going to be in trouble for Jesus. That's okay. The other thing that uh, um, would happen 
um, relative to the church in Jerusalem. The, the, the bulk of Paul's problems from Jews in Jerusalem didn't come from the church there. Uh, came from the Jews who were unsaved. Um, the, the, the witness of the Jewish church was fairly lethargic in the sense that they weren't very transformative in the sense that they were still observing uh, laws, they were still uh, living very much like Jews. That's why the Council of Jerusalem was so necessary. Uh, but, but when Paul would preach, the Jewish troublemakers, it followed him everywhere. There would be even more of them in Jerusalem. Their purpose was simply to make sure he didn't survive. They didn't want more Jews getting saved. And the persecution in the Jerusalem church, those who are Christians, uh, would have kind of put a damper on their enthusiasm. And, and Paul's witness to them had an enormous impact. You see, after Paul left and things got settled, that's when James would write the epistle. That's when others would start start taking their faith seriously. Paul would be used by the Lord to inspire them. So James, you're right, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, but, but James had a hard ministry. Uh, whenever somebody is bound by legalism or bound by law, after we've been given a completely new covenant, uh, there's going to be difficulty, and Paul was 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 um, an opportunity for the Lord to use his faithfulness, even in the face of persecution, to, I hope, encourage and inspire uh, the Jews in Jerusalem uh, after the fact. And and of course, historically, we know uh, that that's what they did. So thank you, Steve. I appreciate it very much. It's a great, great call. See, that's the way we think about the Bible. We have to get in it and see what's going on and look at all of the, the, the angles coming on. So, Steve, that was a great, great call. Thank you very much. Let's go to... Let me see. My next question is from Amanda. Oh, that's the one I just did. Okay, here's Beverly. What is the purpose of tongues if we cannot under, <clears throat> excuse me if we cannot understand what we are praying? Beverly, the purpose of tongues is to take a step of faith. Think about how pleased God is when, in fact, we use a gift He's given us. Now, I know a lot of people are afraid of the gift of tongues because it doesn't make sense. It sounds like gibberish. By the way, the moment you start exercising the gift of tongues, the devil's going to be right there saying, "Oh, that's not God. That's just you. You're making this up." Um, the purpose of tongues is utilizing a gift that edifies our worship to God. When I'm praying in a tongue and I, I have the gift of tongues, I know that I'm praying in the will of God. I'll give you an example. Every Sunday morning, Beverly, when I'm, uh, I've out walked, been walking with the Lord, I prayed for the people in the church who are serving, the people in the church who are coming. I'm, I've got this day set before the Lord. And um, every day, when I'm about on my way back, I get to that place where I'll, I'll exercise the gift of tongues. And you see, that's when I know that it's the Lord praying through me. And I know by faith that whatever I'm praying, God is hearing. And if he hears my prayer, I know that I have it. Now, it isn't necessary that I know. And a lot of it is simply because we don't understand it. We just sort of dismiss it. Now, to your point, we're supposed to ask for the gift of interpretation. And I do, I have, but I don't, I haven't been given that gift. But that doesn't mean I don't use the gift of tongues just because I don't understand. See, these are times when faith has to trump reason. There aren't very many times God asks us to, to bypass reason, but this is one of them. And this is such a wonderful gift. It's so abused and misused in our church culture, Beverly, that, that people are afraid of it. And again, because it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes we have to walk in that which doesn't make sense. I hope that makes sense. And the reason we have to walk in what makes, doesn't make sense is because that demonstrates our level of trust for God. How is it even possible that many Christians would feel like a gift that God wants to give us isn't valuable? I don't want to miss out on any gifts, so 
I pray in, in, in my prayer language when I feel like I'm led to do it. And I do it. It's not something that I can't stop. It's not something that just overwhelms me. It's a decision of my will to use the gift that God has given. And though it's the least of all gifts, because it's just a, a vertical gift between me and God, it's a gift that strengthens my walk with Him and my relationship with Him. And it's a wonderful gift, Beverly. Don't dismiss it. I believe personally, and I think the Apostle Paul agrees with me, that God would give the gift of tongues to everybody. Now, we know that not everybody gets the gift of tongues. But I believe with all of my heart, all of my heart, that he would give the gift. Because why wouldn't he give us a gift that would edify our relationship with him? I just think, unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of people that won't receive it because it doesn't make sense. And I personally enjoy walking by faith. And I don't have to understand everything. I'm fine that God understands things that I don't understand. So, Beverly, that's the purpose of tongues. Use it to glorify God. Use it to edify the Lord in your relationship with Him. We have a caller on the line. I'm not going to be able to get there today because we're about to sign off. I'm so sorry. Please call again tomorrow or uh, on Friday we'll be back here. Um, very quickly, remember tomorrow is the date day edition. Paula will be live in studio uh, with us. Um, ladies, it is your day. We set it aside just for you. I also want to remind you that we uh, will not be here next week live. Pastor Ken will be taking your phone calls and questions, asking some really, really hard ones because he's really smart. So asking some really, really hard ones. And then the following Thursday, May, his wife will be on the date day edition of the program. Tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 13, the last part of it. Pray for me. Thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, Paul and I will be here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.